Hello and welcome back to Make and Tame, the podcast breaking the stigma and lifting the lid on inspiring people who are making a difference. And just before I start the podcast with Dana Rahim, I just want to say thank you so much for the listeners that tune in every week and listen to the podcast. The amount of listeners has doubled since March, so it's super overwhelming and honestly appreciate all the support. And if anyone does have any feedback on the podcast, make sure to drop me a message on DM. I'm always open to suggestions or I'm always trying to make the podcast the best I can. So appreciate all your support. This week, I'm joined by Danny Rahim, an actor, life coach, qualified mental health counsellor and ambassador. Here's what's coming up on this week's episode. at the time with mum and I remember writing on this piece of paper I hate my life I just want to die and I remember writing that like or like in a notepad and I must have written it a hundred times it was mum was sick but after a while you become curious as a child you become what is this like I've never known anyone else to be sick for that long where is mum is it okay now two and a half years ago she had about 35 charges again my mum if you were to meet her is one of the kindest most she'd be like dan do you want a cup of tea she's so quiet and calm and kind of meek in a way i guess but when she goes into this hyper mode or she she goes into the manic state it's it's like it's like two different people the her lead clinician saying he said you're either going to end up dead or in prison And this is a really emotional podcast, hearing what Danny's life and what he's been through and how to grow up very quickly when his mum got diagnosed with bipolar, but also the, the struggles his mum faced along the way being sectioned and facing charges. And also, I think it's really important to see guys be vulnerable and kind of share their mental struggles. As a male myself, I obviously find it quite hard sometimes to kind of share my emotions with like my friends or family. So I think having these conversations are super important. So I couldn't think of a better advocate than Danny, who opens up to me about his own struggles and his own mental health and his breakdown in 2013. And we kind of unpack this in the podcast and learn how Danny has coped and managed it. I think everything Danny has been through, he's used that now to help other people. He's now high sort off life coach. He's a mental health coach alongside this Danny is also a very successful actor traveling the world and doing what he loves just before we jump into the podcast if you can click that subscribe button and leave me a view on iTunes or Spotify honestly I really appreciate your support with all that the way let's jump into the podcast with Danny Rahim oh welcome to another episode of the Make It Same podcast I'm joined by Danny Rahim and we met at a speaking event a few months ago now I don't think we can discuss it just yet of what the event was but we just kind of clicked straight away. So it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Could you do like a, a little introduction to yourself and the listeners, if not come across yourself before? So hello everyone, I'm Danny Rahim and I am an actor. I'm a mental health advocate, ambassador. It's covered many names over the years, uh, but, but definitely passionate about mental health um, and also an actor, speaker, mental health trainer, consultant, etc., etc. So many hats over the years. Yeah, and honestly, it's a pleasure to have you on because... I think guys, and obviously you speak very openly about your mental health and it's something I've been doing more now. And obviously it's great to have, have other males kind of speak very openly about it and mm-hmm. quite vulnerable as well. You know what I mean? Because it's only recent my friends now kind of like speak, speak up about it. What was like your kind of, if we go back to your kind of like childhood, yeah. what was your childhood like growing up? But So I guess I had what would be described as a fairly normal upbringing for the formative years anyway. So I had mum, dad, I grew up in a, in a council estate in West London, working class family. And, uh, up until I guess the age of maybe five, six, mum, dad were together. It was just a fairly normal existence. Um, 
But after that, mum had a a car accident and uh, her mental health really deteriorated. And I think that was the real introduction um, to the word, to the concept, because you'd hear very loosely these terms, particularly from medical practitioners or echoes through my uncle might say something in a conversation. Um, Did you know what you mean at that age? Because it was very like taboo to me, even like... N- no, I mean, so what we were told was that mum was sick. Mm-hmm. So that was how it was. And, we, uh, you know, we were, we were very young, so they weren't going to go into complex diagnosis then. But it was mum was sick. But after a while, you become curious as a child. You become, what does this... Like, I've never known anyone else to be sick for that long. Where is mum? Mm-hmm. Sometimes she was sectioned. Sometimes she was away from... So, so um, and to to have this mood that would oscillate so much. She was diagnosed with bipolar, um, well, manic depression, then bipolar disorder. So it's taken various names over the years. Um, And it was only later on that curiosity kind of led me to what what was actually going on with mum at the time. But back then when I was a kid, it was just mum's sick. You're going to go and stay with gran. Um, And that would happen quite regularly. And so that became my normality, really. It was, you know, mum gets unwell, mum becomes unwell, you go and stay with gran. And I sort of spent a lot of time between living with mum uh, and my gran. At that point as well. Was you very kind of back and forward then? Yeah. Would you, very, would you unsettled or was it just, kind of, was it just felt normal at the time? Do you know, now that I'm able to reflect on it, what it was, was there was, mum really did her best. But when she, when mental ill health sort of took over a lot of her life, um, it was a very turbulent household and uh, very tumultuous. There was, it was sometimes very chaotic and then sometimes very loving. And that became the norm. Um, and I think what was nice about that, that I can appreciate at the time, not, not, not the chaos of that, but that I was then sent to, to live with my gran, who was very loving and warm and stable. And I, I, I'm not sure about everybody's grandma, but my grandma was kind of the stereotypically, you yeah, know, yeah. If I woke up in the morning and said, Gran, I'm sick, she'd be like, I'll stay in bed. You can't go to school. Would you, do you want something to eat? And yeah. I think I was very fortunate to have that balance of at home, some of the, th- that chaos was, was complemented by the love and affection that, that, that hopefully most children do get in that nurturing phase. Um, so in some ways I'm very grateful that I did have, that, that little bit of balance. What I, what I was probably lacking was the real structure and the paternal figure. My mum and dad then split up when all of this happened. So it was myself, uh, my mum and, and my sister at the time, which became two sisters. Um, but yeah, I, I took on... A, a they, they're of, the same age as sisters, are they, are they older? No, so Sky is... Uh, Sky is, I think she's, I'm going to get in trouble for this now, but she's probably around 30. She's in a, she's 30, 31 and Paige is 21, 22. So there's a bit of a gap between them. But I, in those years, I remember having a lot of time with Sky. We grew up, I'm 37, so she's 31, 32. So there wasn't too much of a gap there, but there was enough that I was sort of the older brother that had to look after her and protect her from what was going on uh, from a very young age. So... Yeah, that, that they those were the early years, and I think then when we got to the point of high school. So, what are you then? You're around eleven. Is it eleven years old? Yeah, it's like eleven or twelve when, when yeah. you, you kind of start. Yeah. yeah, 
And that was sort of a, a big transition for me. So, but when I was in primary school, social services were involved because mum's mum was very up and down. They they, they were. They were Can we talk a bit about obviously the bipolar and, and yeah. what what that was and how it kind of affected your mum? And, and I really wanted to ask as well, like before the bipolar, like the mental illness. What did she have any issues be, in prior to that? Not really. When and that's what I when I describe the the normal mum, and I use that in quotation marks because everybody's experience is subjective, right? When, when yeah. you're talking about family dynamics. But mum would go to work. Dad, dad wasn't around, but that was fine. Mum went to work. She provided for us. She had a normal job, uh, nine to five yeah. or whatever it was that in those days. Um, we would go to school. We'd come back and we'd have dinner with mum, you know, playing out in the car park, playing football with friends. It was, it was all that kind of stuff. After school club we would go to. So mum, uh, as a sole parent, she provided, she did what she needed to. So there was, yeah, I would, that's when I say, even though it was mum was by herself at some point, I still see that as many people share that similar experience yeah. of having a sole parent. And so I never looked at that as I was particularly at a loss for anything, but certainly when the mental ill yeah. health and the diagnosis came in, then things really did was your dad around a lot? Do you have a close relationship? With no. Your dad? So dad actually, dad actually passed away in, um, uh, I think it was around 20, 20, 2011, 2010. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't very close with him, to be honest. I was much closer with my Irish family. So I'm half Pakistani, half Irish. Uh, mum's side of the family are Pakistani, dad's but not traditional in the way we might sometimes think. Uh, mum was born here and, and had a very westernized upbringing. Okay. And um, dad was uh, born in Northern Ireland uh, in a place called Bangor near Belfast. And um, I spent a lot of time when I was younger going over. So when dad wasn't around, I would go to Ireland and spend time with my family over there. So okay. there are lots of pictures of me as a kid going to see my grandparents. And I know throughout his various challenges, he had some personal challenges whilst you know, he was going through growing up and through his teens and, and, and adulthood. Um, and I, and from, from what I recall, there was some, some problems with alcohol and some issues that he had to deal with deal himself. With um, but so I would go and see the family, but at times the my grandparents on that side were disconnected with my dad as well. So it was like, he kind of went it's as this lone range. Yeah, there was a bit of a yeah. disconnect. So I'm actually still very close with my Irish family. I'm going to go over and see them next month. And it's not as frequent as it once was, but they're still very much there as a, yeah. as a support infrastructure. Um, so yeah, what was the question? <laughs> it's kind of we? like your, your relationship with your dad. Oh, like, relationship with dad. Because I've heard... I think on previous podcasts, yeah. like I hear a lot about your mum, which we'll kind of, yeah. we, we've kind of touched upon, but we'll yeah. kind of delve into. But I, I just wondered, like, obviously, obviously on previous podcasts, I didn't really hear much about your dad. So I just thought yeah. whether he was like kind of still. Whether he was yeah. there or yeah, what yeah. was, yeah. And it's a good observation. I think he's talked about less because I, I had less yeah. of a relationship with him, to be honest. I remember... My, my one memory of him probably is turning up to a 10th or 11th year old birthday and he turned up in a bunny, big pink bunny suit. And I think he was on a stag do. Yeah. yeah. And uh, my mum, I do remember my mum saying, look, it's, you know, you haven't been around for such a long time and yeah. you, you kind of, you're turning up and I'll never, I'm never going to stop you seeing Danny, your son, yeah. but um, be mindful of the impact that it might have on him that you're just gone and then you just turn up and I can't remember if he was drunk, yeah, he had yeah. a few beers, whatever, I don't know. Um, but yeah, and I think after that, 
I didn't really speak to him for a long time. Uh, in fact, I didn't speak to him. And then what happened is I came out, I left drama school and um, I uh, very quickly, I, one of my earliest jobs, I got a job in EastEnders. I was in EastEnders for a little bit. Yeah. And they all saw me in that. My family saw me in that. And, uh, you know, I hadn't been, I, I was up at university, so I hadn't been speaking to them as much. And what happened is, what, what my uncle has told me is that um, dad, very unexpectedly, he went into a coma. He had a motorcycle accident when he was younger. And he had this um, this clot in his leg. And what happened is gradually that got worse over time to a point just that- Just like he, completely unaware. He wasn't was really like, unaware, but yeah. he was also, from from what I've been told, he was like, oh, you know, people are like, or his partner at the time would be like, you need to go to the doctor. And he'd be like, no, it's fine. Just leave it's like it. It's generation as well, yeah. like, where they're just like, yeah, we don't need to, yeah. like, it'd be fine. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's people far worse off than I am. Like, I don't want to waste yeah, the yeah. doctor's time. He was quite, from from what I've heard. <clears throat> and what that what then happened is his leg sort of went purple. This, 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 this clot expanded relatively quickly all up his leg. And um, the doctors basically, he went into a coma and the doctors basically said, to my my granddad and to my uncle, you've got to make a decision. We need to either amputate his leg or prescribe him a really strong course of antibiotics that he might not make it through. Yeah. So I guess it was my uncle and my granddad that made the decision to say, look, you know, if Paul, my dad, wakes up and he's got no leg, you know, I'm sure, and I'm pretty sure actually yeah. from what I've heard of him, he would have gone, let's go antibiotics and see what we can do. And it, unfortunately, he didn't, he didn't make it through. Yeah. But... Um, what I'd heard before that is that he had been wanting to reach out and get back in contact, but because he had seen me in that show, he thought to himself, I haven't been in touch with him for so long. Now he's on this TV show and I'm going to reach out and say, Hey, it's your dad. Um, you know, yeah, I'm here know again. Yeah. Obviously he didn't expect anything of, of all the, 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 the coma and, and yeah. the blood clot and all of that, that happened. So that's what I was told by my uncle. Yeah. And that's the, 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 the story I guess I've chosen to, to keep. And I did go to his funeral and, um, I think what was quite strange was, um, looking in this casket of someone that's, that's passed away that is my dad and thinking, you know what, I'll never be able to have a beer with that person or I'll never be able to. I was going to ask, was, was there any moments like, obviously when you found out that you was like, I wish I had more time to like, maybe ask him questions are kind of get to know him the the first thing that happened is mum's mental health deteriorated again because even though they weren't very close i guess at the time it's still someone that you've you've had a child with yeah. and and there was a big impact on her as to him passing away they they had a history there was love there there was you know all the things that they shared and so actually i was put quite quickly onto supporting hit supporting her yeah. as the byproduct of him passing. So I didn't get a lot of time to reflect on what that meant to me. It was more making sure mum was okay. Mm. Um, and I think that's some from kind of, kind of reading about yourself and mm -hmm. listening to you on another podcast is you took on a lot at a very young mm. age as well with, with your mum and kind of looking after her. I mean, how was that from a very kind of 13 year old boy, like kind of, going through school, but also having kind of the pressures of making sure that his mom's okay and that she's up. Yeah, I, I think um, I, it, it was it was what I knew that there was, although... It felt normal in some it ways. It felt normal yeah. in some ways. And I grew up, 
first of all, on South Acton Estate, uh, then Green Dragon, which is in Brentford. And there were a lot of kids in those environments, my friends, that had similar, if not worse, situations. So I would always think of myself, oh, I'm quite lucky, actually, in this situation. Yeah. You know, there was lots of guns, drugs, not not that we were, but, but that was the scene on yeah. the estates at the time. Um, and... Um, yeah, so I found my, I thought that I was quite lucky to have the loving grandma yeah. that I could just go back to. And, you know, mum was around when she was able to be around. And um, so so I, I, I guess I just framed it at that point as I'm actually quite lucky in many yeah. ways. And it was a big, a big bit of responsibility, but I just, I jumped onto it because that was sort of all I knew. It was, which way are you going to go? Are yeah. you going to crumble? Or are you going to just try and prosper and make something of this? So yeah, that was the path I chose. Yeah. Obviously at a very kind of young age, obviously kind of like looking after your mum. Mm -hmm. When you kind of got to like your kind of like your teens and kind of like high school, did it yeah. get a bit easier then? How was your mum's kind of mental health at that point? Um, so <clears throat> it didn't get easier, uh, I don't think. In fact, it possibly got worse. But um, because then my younger sister, I was able to go and live with my gran, but my younger sister had to go, she was into care, she was put into care. Um, so that had challenges in itself because she was so young and mum's yeah. health and, and some of her actions was, were deemed high risk to, to, to my sister. So, uh, never, never, never harmed to Sky, but, but the things that mum was doing and. Is it kind of like the language and like the bipolar? I mean, what, yeah. is it just like swearing or was it just kind of aggression or was it just everything? So, like mindful of what how you're going to caveat this but there was a lot multiple suicide attempts um so that's not very good in an environment with a child police yeah. coming and knocking the door ambulance is coming knocking at the door at three in the morning because she's done something and then called them and then yeah. we're in the house you know that's not the environment really that's psychologically safe for a child um so as a result of that sky was taken into to care of 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 the local council, mm -hmm. I guess. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't say uh, it, it, I, I, I grew up really fast. I had to grow up really fast. And imagine I imagine so in the like, circumstances, I can't imagine like kind of your kind of upbringing when you're younger and kind of taking on that responsibility. At yeah. Yeah. Such a young age. Yeah. I think who, who was a, a big lifeline and I, and I have to give credit was, was my, my first girlfriend, uh, Rachel and we're still still friends today and her family was so kind to me and they became well her and her family and they gave me this semblance of normality and I spent a lot of time with them and there was I just remember there was always like a plate of food for me and mm. or Rachel would share hers with me and I think that meant a lot because where I had chaos on one side I had gran with the love and yeah. I had my partner so so it was about that support infrastructure mm. that really held me and, and, and I guess helped me to get kind through it all. Get through all that. Yeah. Kind of yeah, for sure. It's like, when, when did you first kind of experience like your mental health? Was it, was that a young age then? Would you say? So I wasn't really like, I wasn't particularly aware of my mental health. Um, I, I wasn't focusing on it. I, I certainly wasn't aware of any deterioration that came sort of later yeah. because it was just keep calm and carry on. Uh, and it was just say it's like keeping your head above the water in some ways. Yeah, I was, you know, I, 
yeah, it, it was just, I, I found this new, it, I, I just had to drive forward. You, you either turn back and you, you, you allow it to defeat you and you get broken by it. I mean, I remember a time when I was still, I, I was living in West Eden at the time with mum. And I remember writing on this piece of paper, I hate my life. I just want to die. And I remember writing that like, or like in a notepad and I must've written it a hundred times. Yeah, and, um, uh, do you remember that moment when you did write that? Yeah, I do actually. It's one of my only memories. It's one of my few memories of that place. And what was, uh, what was quite strange was about five or six years ago, mum moved and I had put this thing under a mattress or something and we found it. And we didn't know it was there. Wow, so all the, all the years later. Yeah, yeah and me, yeah. And, you know, I, I have to say that I do, do have a, a very kind and loving uncle who sort of stepped in as the paternal figure for me and he really helped me out. Um, <clears throat> but nevertheless, in those moments where, you know, police and ambulance are, are coming and knocking on the doors, I got school the next day, yeah. um, where mum's coming in at four in the morning hoovering and I'm like, mum, what are you doing? I got yeah. school and she's like, effing and blinding she's telling me to shut up and it's none of my business and I remember then it took a let on a layer she, she started to really hoard and the house became very full and I remember going to go in my room one day and I opened it and there was a sofa behind my door because the whole house was so full I couldn't open I had <laughs> to like, like, kind of yeah. climb in and just yeah. wasn't a great environment but again I just it's just what it was yeah. you know I remember coming in one day and mum uh, had had in lipstick written all over the wall all of this it was like she she was losing her mind in some ways and and going through maybe a a, a small bit of psychosis and 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 right and imagining things and seeing things and writing with lipstick all over imagine that imagine coming in here one day and there's just covered yeah. in lipstick and as a child you're like what is and you're trying to read it all so and every it's, day it's just like a different you just, story, it yeah. was so unpredictable and it was so psychologically unsafe but i knew in my heart of hearts that it was she didn't mean it i knew that it wasn't her fault it was some kind of illness that was and this all came down to the, the car accident that was the tipping point. That was the trigger, yeah. So she had a car. Isn't it mad though? Like one incident could potentially change your life forever. 100%. And I had Chakra on and he, he, he got sectioned and he was just saying, everyone's just one thought away from that tipping point. One, one action, one event. Now, as I track back now, I, and we have tracked back and obviously I'm doing the work that I do now. So I'm very uh, psychology and going back and understanding the mind. There were lots of trauma that my mum experienced when she was growing up. Growing up with my gran, who was fairly traditional. My my mum is brought up here in a Western environment. There, were, my, my gran wanted her to have an arranged marriage. Obviously, mum didn't want that. Um, so she went through her, she lot, experienced yeah. her own trauma. But I guess for her, she just, um, in fact, we could even track back a little bit. My grandma moved to the UK uh, with her husband, my grandfather, and he was working, I think, for Network Rail. They had two kids or three kids. That was my mom and my uncles. And he had this very mysterious death at work. No one still knows to this day what happened to him. But he was the provider. He got the job over here. He was very intelligent. And, and, and he came over from Pakistan. So she was here. Her husband passed away. This is my grandma. Yeah. She had three kids. She could barely speak any English. So then my uncles and my mom all get taken into care. Because she had a breakdown. Oh, wow. So when you track it back, mental ill health has sort of run in the family a little yeah, bit. And I'm very yeah, I'm very curious as to the nature nurture component yeah. of all of that. But 
So she had her own trauma and she found her way through. She got herself a job. She had her kids and she was just cracking on, like doing focus, what she needed yeah. to do to, to, to provide for her family. So there's no doubt in my mind that there were probably some bits of that, but that she had managed, she was managing yeah. and that she was coping with or dealing with or not getting overwhelmed. But when she had her car accident and she lost her baby, that trigger probably brought up a lot of old stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so... Yes, it was a, a it's probably a, obviously out of a job as well. So you just left with yeah. your thoughts, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 I think she her her mental health really deteriorated at, at that point. Was it quite fast? And then did it happen overnight, or was it? Mm, was so it, there was there did was. Did she recover first, and then it kind of there was place? there were questions about PTSD. Yeah. Is it so she's had a traumatic event? What 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 is this? Um, uh, she, there are certain diagnoses, for example, emotionally unstable personality disorder, which she has been diagnosed with, but they take a long time to measure. Like three, it can be three, four, four years before you get that diagnosis. Yeah. Whereas if you go and see, if it's depression, you can go and see your GP and it's usually two weeks for a, for the yeah. a clinical diagnosis. They'll say, watch your mood over a couple of weeks, come and report back. Yeah. Um, and that's where you'll get, you, you may get the diagnosis. But for more complex diagnosis, it can take years. And so- what was then depression, was then manic depression, was then it took so many names over the years. But the bottom line was she was not very well and she was really struggling with her mental health. Um, but but again, the coping mechanisms at the time, there was then medication, she was sectioned a few times. There were all these ways of, of, of trying, I guess, for people to, to support her in this. Uh, but none of them were really particularly effective. Did she have much family? I know you mentioned your uncle was there yeah. for yourself. Like, yeah. do you come from a big family yourself? Uh, so we've got, I've got um, uh, three uncles. I've got three uncles and mum. So mum is, has three siblings. Very close to one of my uncles, not so much with the others. They're yeah. all sort of off doing their own things. But yeah. He was um, quite an important part of your life, weren't it? When my you were uncle, younger, yeah. certainly, yeah. And I think what happened is through the through the phases and the years of mum's mental ill health, the family were all there in the beginning for support. But when she became very unwell, she became very abusive, and she'd be calling people up on their landlines at four in the morning, shouting abuse to them. My my family have kids, or, or my uncles have children, and so gradually the disengagement happened because it was too much. Too much, yeah. And what happened was before my sister went into care, my uncle offered to take her. He said, "Look, we are family, and you know we're not going to send our own family into care." But Mum's behaviour was so erratic and 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 so destructive that she would be calling my auntie up and saying to her, these are not your, she's not your effing kid and I don't want you to. And what my auntie had to make a decision was, was she had two kids of her own. Yeah. And actually it would be fine to bring our family in and, and have her there. But what she couldn't have was this kind of self-destructive or, or individual, my mum coming in and causing all of that chaos for her children. Yeah. So I completely understood that. That that made sense, and they were willing and prepared to. But in the end, it was like you must know, be hard because it brings like a bit of divide. I imagine in in the family and stuff. I yeah. mean, is it okay now on, on both sides? I think yeah. people have realised, yeah. Mum, to, to you know, has done so well in the past couple of years. I mean, two and a half years ago, she had about thirty five charges against my mum. If you were to meet her, is one of the kindest, most she'd be like. Dan, do you want a cup of yeah. tea? She's so quiet and calm and, and, and kind of meek in a way, I guess. But when 
she goes into this hyper mode or she she goes into the manic state it's it's like it's like two different people it really is and it's some people don't even identify her as the same person but i think the family have now come to realize she's had she's 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 really trying hard and she has had a little slip at the moment which I'll, i'll i'll tell you a bit more about in a bit but i think they realize she's doing her best and she's she had 35 outstanding charges against her. I mean, at one point she was, um, this was during the pandemic. She, she took all her clothes and she was walking across train tracks. That's the extent of what it was. And so then she had to be sectioned and then actually she went to prison for that because during the pandemic, what they said is you're now not only endangering yourself, you're endangering other people. If the train had to skid, and people got injured, you're now putting other people at risk. So they had to go to prison for that. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't even if it's, if you know, someone's in not the right frame of mind when they did it, it was. Yeah. Um, And there are, there are different places that you go. So, so my understanding, it wasn't like, you know, as we see like orange is the new black, you know, that she was, she's not in general population. She's in a medical ward of the prison, but that she, she could not be released. She could not just leave herself because when she did, she became um, a risk to the general public. Mm. And, we totally understood that. We, we we accepted that. And I think that was a big reality check for her after that. When she came out, she was like, you know, I've got a choice of either... I remember going to see... I'm sorry, I'm jumping around here because little bits are, are reminding myself. I remember going to to Ealing Hospital and, and, and meeting her lead clinician, going to this, this ward. And you, you have something like... It's like a ward round where everybody that's involved in your mum's care yeah. is there. And I had to go there to be that, to be her person, her next of kin. And I do remember the her lead clinician saying, there's two things that are going to happen as a result of this behaviour if it continues. And, and this was a, an expert that had dealt with this for many, many years in different patients. And he said, you're either going to end up dead or in prison. And he said, it's up to you to decide which one. And I was quite shocked. I was like, you know, he's being very direct with her, but yeah. he was right. And he, she needed that reality check. And subsequently she did end up in prison uh, to some degree. And she came out and there were so many charges outstanding. So she left the medical um, ward, ward w- w- wherever she was being held. And um, then she had, to, then there was all this legal stuff would happen. So she would, she would have her, she'd have all of her med- medication regulated and she'd come out in this, this very calm state again. And then what would happen is she'd have 30 charges outstanding against her. And so of course that would then cause her anxiety and stress and then lift her up. So she was yeah. in this perpetual cycle. Was she taking the medication when she got back into like reality or back into she was she's been on medication for a long she's been on she's been on a morphine a continuous morphine patch or replacing these morphine patches since the car crash so for that long so she's having morphine she's having antidepressant i think at one point she was taking 14 to 16 tablets a day so mood levelers stabilizers antidepressant whatever all these things were it was like a cocktail and it was a lot that must be a mad book it can't be good for taking that i mean some people obviously I don't know. Like some people need medication and it, and it helps, but imagine. Yeah. I mean, many, it must be, it yeah, must and they, be they, they, you know, her GPs have always been fantastic. I've got yeah. a great relationship with them. They were our family GPs and they yeah. always try their best for her, but these it, to refine the medication is such an art into what someone needs. And yeah. so to finish that little bit of the story, she, she came out with these 30 charges and, um, 
I then wrote this letter to the solicitors to just say to her, which then went to court. And I said, look, mum is working so hard. She's has she's had a lot of trauma in her life. Um, you know, she doesn't mean some of the things she does and says. And the judge ruled and just dropped all the charges and it's said, amazing. you've had a really tough life, Malika, and we, we want to support you, but like do your best to try and stay out of trouble yeah. now. And, and that really struck her, like the compassion from that judge um, you know, our empathy trying to support her and 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 really not judging her for everything she, that she yeah. had experienced. And that was one of the first stages that, that the rehabilitation really yeah. came into effect. And so for nearly a year and a half, two years, she's been fantastic. And only two, yeah. two, three weeks ago, she had a, she's had a bit of a slip again. And that's how we describe yeah. it as a slip. Her birthday was coming up on the Friday. And she didn't want to be in bed. She spent a lot of time, you know, at home, not feeling very confident to go out. She'd like, you know, order food in and, you know, go to the bathroom and come back, yeah, but not yeah. going out and really. Oh, yeah. And um, she said, you know, I want to be mum for my birthday. I want to take you all out for dinner. And, 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 you know, and she put a lot of pressure on herself. And so she begged her psychiatrist to, to just up her dosage, just marginally, just so that she could have the energy uh, to, 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 to function and get up. And unfortunately that small adjustment just tipped her. And oh, we, really? she spent, yeah, that she spent the week before her birthday. I, I can, I can, I know when it's coming now because the text messages get, I'm getting calls and texts eight or nine a day. Yeah. I'm getting a call at two, three in the morning. So you know when I can up. feel yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, I can yeah. feel it coming and I knew yeah, it was yeah. coming. I knew it was oh, coming. Yeah. And what that culminated in, um, which, you know, is, is the, the tragedy. But the truth is she tried to set fire to the house. And this was two weeks ago. Jesus, it was a small fire. Yeah. You know, it wasn't, but I, you know, I got sent this uh, video from my sister and it was like six police cars, two fire engines. And I'm thinking what has gone on. Yeah. It's just wild. It's wild. And um, I was actually at my friend's house at the time in North London where we are now. And, you know, I just, I was sitting having some food and I said, Oh, mum's tried to set fire to the house. And he was like, are you okay? He's like, that's so not, that's not normal. But I've become so desensitized to that yeah, stuff Yeah, I can imagine, yeah, when you've heard all these like experiences and what you've been through, you yeah. probably go, oh, it's just another, another and thing. And I was just like, like yeah. wow, look how many, you know, police and are, are called there. Yeah. And I don't like to, it's not, I don't like to use the term a cry for help, but I don't think she really was trying to set fire to the house. Yeah. But she needed some support. The police and ambulance had been one. Finished in it for like attention you know when someone's like really really struggling and that they need that attention so they do something really drastic yeah the t the, the, the attention theory is like it's is kind of it is is the way to look at it is not for attention is she needed support support she yeah. needed support but i mean um, yeah sorry i mean the yeah, attention no, to get this yeah yeah essentially um and she needed some support and you know she still had to her clinicians and her her, her yeah. nurse she still had people around her, but that was where she was going into that, that, that manic state. She was too hyper. It was too much. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's not someone, it's not anyone's job to be sat with her 24 seven. That's no one's job to be doing that. I mean, my yeah. sister is, is staying with her at the moment, but even that's a lot for my sister that's currently at university, you know, waking up and the smoke alarms go, it's a lot. You yeah. Know? Take it on. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so she she was sectioned to three weeks ago now. She will finish off the last probably week of her 28-day section. And, 
you know, my sister sent me a video a couple of days ago and she's just like, hi, Dan, sorry about what happened, you know? And we're like, look, there's no, no, no judgment. It's yeah. okay. You're not well. And we can't wait to see you. And we will have that belated birthday dinner together yeah. when you're, when you're back yeah, out. You're better, and yeah. I've learned a lot in, in, in all my study and the journey that I've been on is compassion, empathic understanding. Those things get the best results, not judgment, not, mm. not berating someone not blaming someone not shaming someone they don't get the results that doesn't affect positive change yeah um so so that's her her journey and and, and as a family what's been really nice about this situation is the girls my sisters have stepped in and sort of shared a little bit of that responsibility whereas five ten years ago it was all on me and it was yeah. a lot and now we have it's quite nice to kind of share it out yeah. rather than it all going on kind of by one person. Yeah. Cause it, I imagine, yeah, it's a lot to kind of, yeah. Well, we create that triangle through, of yeah. support. So yeah. I tend to deal with a lot of the clinicians and the emails and the more, I guess, high level stuff. And my sisters are there to take clothes to the hospital to make sure she's okay. She's got food. So we found a really nice way of working and supporting each other working so that it's together, not yeah. all on one person. Yeah. Um, and I think that was really important. No, that's incredible. I kind of wanted to touch upon obviously like your kind of career and obviously acting and we'll kind of mm -hmm. get into like the life coaching because I think I feel like everything happens for a reason and everything yeah. you've gone through now probably kind of plays a massive part in obviously your life coaching. How did you get into acting? Was that from a, a young age? Yeah so acting the acting came I was I was uh it was actually quite a, a, a funny one that I was um I was in high school and there was a phase at high school where I was literally coming in. This is, I guess, a bit of a rebellious phase. I was coming in. I was using my, I had a free school meal card, which I had £1.50 on every day, which got me yeah. a pizza and chips or something of the sort. Yeah. So I would come in, I'd have my lunch, I'd play football and I'd leave. This was my GCSE oh, year. Yeah. Uh, but I had no grand not telling me what to do. I had no yeah. no one saying to me, you must. That's kind of my like role model to kind of put you in the yeah, right direction, yeah. essentially. So I'll just go back to another mate's, play Mario Kart all day, whatever it was. Yeah. But, it, you know, uh, and I had a teacher, um, Mr. Boddington, and he was, he became a bit of a mentor. He, he really believed in me. And I think it was, I think it was either the football team, but there was some kind of sporting thing. And he, I remember him saying to me, well, you're not going to be, we're not going to let you in the football team unless you do something out of your comfort zone that, that applies yourself in school. Mm -hmm. So the two choice, I think it was like, you know, learn an instrument, yeah. go to drama class, do something that keeps me on the straight and narrow like in grounded, school. Kind of grounded, thing, yeah. exactly, yeah. You kind of touched upon the teacher then, Mr. Bonington. Mm -hmm. Was he like the first person to believe in you? Because I've had that before where, for me, it was a person in college called John Pritchard. Yeah. He was like the first person to like really believe in me and the person, and he had a massive like, influence on my life and you and, don't forget him my, do you on my career now <laughs> honestly it's just down to him having yeah. that, that kind of that self-belief would you say that was the first person to kind of believe in yourself yeah I think there were there were definitely teachers that helped me along the way but he was very significant and I think the reason he was significant was because when this um this education maintenance allowance which was 30 quid a week if you had full attendance for yeah. the week uh you get 30 quid and that, that, that meant a lot to me at, at that point because I was living with my gran. I was kind of supporting her yeah. with, with, you know, food and, and I hadn't been coming in and he knew that. And I, he just said, Danny, you're, you know, you're 
you, you can't get this thing. And I said, look, I'm, I said, you know, I know I should have been in. Here's what's going on. And I explained it to him and he signed me off as though as that I had been in so that I could get the money because he knew it was. Yeah, yeah. And I think I, because he took that leap of faith in me, I was like, you know what? I don't want to let him down yeah, in yeah, some yeah, ways. And um, so, yeah, I then auditioned for the school play with, with one of my good buddies. And, and what play was that? It was Guys and Dolls, right? Guys and Dolls. And uh, no, no, that one. It's, yeah, it's this musical. It's actually on at the Bridge Theatre at the moment. Oh, really? I went, I went oh, to right. go and see it. It was yeah. it was so funny to to come back and see something that meant so much to me at that yeah, time. Yeah, you got that personal connection with it. Yeah. yeah, because what happened was I auditioned for it thinking, right, they're going to make me tree number three. They're going to plonk me somewhere in the corner, ticked off, I'm back in the team. Yeah. But they didn't. What they did was they made me the main part. Wow. And we had a year who were full of very talented, like musical theatre. They had been to musical theatre primary schools and all of this, yeah, art said, all of these, play, kind of all, yeah, yeah, great yeah. singers, great performers. So yeah. I was like, well, that's the lead cast done. So yeah. we're going to get one of the little side parts, easy one rehearsal, come in, do it, whatever. But it wasn't. They gave me the main part uh, or one of four main parts. And it was the first time I had to like apply myself, learn my lines. I was being very creative there was probably also an element that the, the guy that I got cast as Nathan Detroit was very cheeky. He's a very yeah. cheeky chappy, very fret, like, you know, kind of played into your kind of personality yeah. quite well. Yeah. yeah. And I got to then what I learned through acting then was I got to convey and um, emotions, but not as myself. So I would then be another character that could be sad mm. or I could be another character that was melancholic or I could be another character that was, I could play all these different parts, but it wasn't me. Was it? Was it like escapism in, in yeah, some ways? I think so. Yeah. But I didn't realize it at the time. At the time, yeah. And so naturally that that sort of progressed and, and my, my love for it, my love for the, not necessarily just the performing, but the preparation, the studying, the creating of something, presenting it to people, seeing the reward when people say, wow, that was really that good, was Danny, and giving yeah, yeah. me that affirmation. I was like, wow, I really like this feeling yeah. that I'm getting. So... For A levels, we did a we we did this devised piece, and one of one a devised piece, and one of the girls' uh, parents worked at Sky, I think it was. So they gave us some funding to go to the Edinburgh Festival. So we it's went and did a show yeah. at the Edinburgh Festival. It was terrible, but it was fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and then from there, the teachers helped me. They said, you know, you've you've got something here. There's a talent here, and you should pursue it. Pursue yeah. it. And so they helped me and guided me in, into in uh, applying for drama school. Um, and I got in, I did all my auditions. I got a few options and then I decided to go to Manchester, Manchester, you yeah. know, Manchester, um, but Manchester school of theater. And I loved it up there. I made some of my best friends, but what was really important about all of that is I got to move away from the chaos. I got to distance myself from it. And although it was very much on the phone and I was still the next of kin and I would still be getting all of these calls, I could set boundaries. I could so mum just couldn't come into my room with all yeah, that whenever chaos. She wanted to no, I had my yeah. own space. I had my own life. I was in halls. Um, and I, I mean, how was that like, would you feel like you had a bit of a break from it in, in some ways from being in the chaos of, of the home and kind of your family home. So obviously moving out and being in Manchester. To some degree. Yeah. yeah. But what then, what then happened was there were elements of guilt because I felt I've left my sisters. They're still back home. They're, they're still dealing with this. Yeah. So financially I was trying to support them. Um, and emotionally to some extent, but I, I needed to, to cut ties a little bit. I needed to go and 
have a bit of a fresh start for me. I needed to go and launch a bit of a new life because it was taking its toll, but I didn't know that at the time. Okay. And obviously when you're at university or sort of when I was at university, fresh as week, it turns into fresh as month. There's it a lot of alcohol consumption. Stop, it it like, just, yeah. yeah, your whole one, two, three years. I think the one thing that I had that kept the, the course was a very intensive course. You know, some university courses are 16 hours a week. Ours was like eight, nine, 10 hours a day, then shows. Yeah. So it probably helped structure me a little bit, but it was still, you know, you're going out, you're drinking, you're going to bars and clubs and probably unbeknownst to me again is probably numbing and dampening a lot of the things that were going on and not processing you know all these emotions all which these emotions. Really happen, yeah. so i left university um was very lucky on you do a showcase at the end i got an agent um an agent in london and it's quite difficult to get an agent yeah, uh, yeah. It, but yeah it, it, i was i was very very lucky but i think partially no, what I should be saying actually to myself is no, Danny, you're good. And you, yeah. got, but, but what I was, you know, it was, there was a, uh, I guess an element of the diversity aspect. I think I was like the only Asian guy in probably two years or maybe even the three years. So when you was there, yeah. Yeah. So anyone that came in that was what's now known as a global majority, but was an ethnic minority or however you want to frame it was, yeah. did kind of always get swept up because out of 30 students in a year, if you've got one person of color, you stand out. Yeah. But yeah, I was very lucky. I got I got a few offers from different agencies and I chose a particular agent and work started to 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 kick off almost immediately. Was it was it quite you kind of uh, did it kind of kick off straight away in regards to obviously getting these jobs or and what was that first kind of moment where you was like, oh my God, like I've got just got this massive job and just come out. Yeah, I think I was actually, I think I might've actually still been at uni when I got my first job. I was still at uni and I think I, I think the first job was a, was like an ITV thing uh, with Saran Jones. I think it was called Unforgiven or something like that. It was just a little small part, couple of lines, yeah. but I think I was still at uni when that was, so it even started before started I finished. Started before, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, things picked up. I did a, I did a play at the Dry School Theatre, was it, which was about the Western involvement in Afghanistan. That got nominated for an Olivier. Wow! We then took it all over America. You travelled around America, so I was show, all yeah. around America with this show. Yeah, for about a year. Well, it went on for. It feels like it went on forever, like yeah. two or three years. But it was a really good grounding into learning my craft in the in the. I was going to say with with everything what happened in these like your upbringing, like mm. tapping into. Do you tap into them emotions, do you think, sometimes when you got to play a certain part or, or kind of play a certain emotion? Yeah, certainly in that production. I think I played nine different characters over six or seven plays. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was about war and it was about loss and grief and loads of things. So I was very able to tap into all of yeah. that. Uh, but again, not as myself, as as these it's characters. Um, so really, really enjoyed that. Came back and then I can't remember which order they all happened in, but a series of TV shows, one of which I went to go and film in Canada for... for was that Primeval? Primeval, yeah. yeah. So I was out there for about eight or nine months, I think. And... Um, How was that experience like being in Canada? Oh, I mean, you must be quite young as well. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah I was fairly young and it was wild. It was I was so lucky to get that part and I was so grateful to get that part and financially it it, it set me up quite well for a while and... Um, I was able to, as a result, buy a flat from that job in in West London. Yeah. I bought a flat near mum so I could support her, but not have to be living in 
the place That's with amazing. her. So like, I, I just literally went. You've been able to put like a deposit down when you get yeah, by. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah and I'm, I'm so lucky yeah. with that. Um, but I knew that when I came back off from uni, well, I came back from uni and then I was kind of off into the shows. But I knew at some point I'd have to land back in London. And where where I stood was I would have to be moving back in with mum. She had the space for me, but I was like, I cannot go back there. I just yeah. can't live in that space. Not good for my 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 mental health. Yeah. So now I'm starting to become aware of my mental health. How was your mental health then when you was doing all these acting gigs? Was was, was the acting like you say? Was you so focused on the acting that you, you kind of holding back or kind of holding these it was emotions? Distraction. Yeah, it was distraction. So I was not addressing any of the trauma that I had been through. Mm-hmm emotional abuse when did that hit you then when when was that moment where because sometimes it can just hit you in one go and it just comes out of nowhere well i guess okay so i i guess you know it i've mimicked mum's what happened with mum low level trauma to some degree in fact i don't want to diminish it for others but for me you know it was what i experienced and um and then um I had that event or sequence of events and that sequence of events in the space of about three months was dad passing away, the knock on effect on mum, which was lots of, lots of, she, she was not in a good place. Yeah. I fell off my little Vespa on the, on the way to a job at the BBC. So I broke my foot. So now I've got physical trauma as well. I'm in a cast for three to six months. Yeah. You lost that job as well. Lost that job. It, yeah. yeah. Um, in fact, they try to. You also say it comes in freeze as well, don't they? When, you know, when, it's when, really, yeah, it's funny you say that. So I've got dad passes away, knock on impact to mom. I've got breaking my foot. Um, and I've got, and, and as a result, I was just pushing everyone away. And at the time I had a girlfriend who was really good to me, but I was, I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what. So I was, I'd push away the only things that were close to me. And at that time it was uh, a girlfriend who was very, very supportive. So as I've pushed her away, I'm now more and more by myself. I'm at this lovely flat in West London, sitting by myself alone with a broken foot. And that is when the thoughts started to happen. That is when I started to just get really low. I've got now physical injury, all the all the trauma and the things that I've experienced. I'm feeling loss and regret because I've lost my partner. I'm feeling mum's not in a good place. Mm-hmm. I'm not working. I can't work. Was there anyone you could reach out to at that time or like any kind of guy friends or even female friends? Anyone yeah, you could I, I had a lot of friends yeah. and I was quite a, not in an, in, in an arrogant, but I was quite a popular person. Yeah. I love people. I love friends. I, you know, I always try to Being around, socializing. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 but I didn't think at the time, I, I was just like, I don't want to burden anyone. And I was just thinking, oh, I'm just not in a great place and I need to, this too shall pass, you know? But it didn't. And I got worse and worse and worse. How many weeks was it? Like, because imagine like we've all been through this patch where like stuff happens and you go through like Mm. this kind of dark patch. Like how many weeks in or months in when you're like, I still feel like this and I I can't kind of shift this emotion. I wasn't, it wasn't a, a thing of weeks or months. I started to research methods to take my own life. And it got to a very serious point. First of all, it was just pure curiosity. Like what does, you're hearing these words, depression. I've heard it from my mom. I've heard, you know, probably suicide, attempted suicide or attempts on your life became quite normalized because mom was at some point once a month and I'd be hearing these words from the doctors. It's this, it's that, or, you know, she's, so it became very normal for me. So it didn't feel like a big, 
thing in, in some way right. because you've been like, brought up around that yeah. word yeah and so I, was, I've, I feel like I was very desensitized to it um and what it culminated in I was getting worse and worse and worse but not sort of realizing and my cast was set to get taken off and at that point all of my mates said oh cast off come and come and meet us let's go for some drinks we're going for some drinks we're going out in Clapham brilliant yeah um, and it's probably the worst idea to come away from. I hadn't been drinking by myself in the flat. It wasn't something that I ever did by myself. It was always a social thing. So I've gone from not drinking. I've had all this trauma. I haven't processed anything that's going on. I go for this big night out. Lots of alcohol. Lots yeah. of alcohol. And I get into a really bad place. And at the end of the night, I, what was now known as an adjustment trauma, but I was the, I was in the space where I wanted to take my own life and I left my friends and I said goodbye to them. And I, in my, they, they, they had no idea. No idea. They thought I'm just going for an early night back home. They had no idea. And I left. Even that night you, you seem normal to them. Yeah. I was putting on the, the The brave, you know, and there is something that I've learned subsequently that, that usually, um, those individuals that, that, that have taken their own lives, the lasting memory is usually a very smiley, positive one because the person wants to, and I know this was the thing for me, they want to leave a positive memory when they know they're going to go. So yeah, I never thought about it. So you always, you know, it's always see you tomorrow then. Or like people have no, well, not always, Mm. but there are a lot of the times people are like, he, he just said goodbye to the kids and went off to work. Right. No idea. No idea. Cause I had, I had a friend of a friend, um, can't say the name, but, she went out with like group of girls. Mm. Um, they're all together. One of the group of girls, like, like it happens to any group, like just goes missing, and, like just like disappears, and mm. like, oh maybe she's too drunk, or maybe she's had enough. It's yeah. quite late on in the night, anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and then they're coming back, and there's like commotion around the tube, but they don't think anything of it, so they get an Uber instead, and they find out the next day, like this girl like jumps in front of the tube wow. at the end of the night. And like, mm. it's mad, yeah, isn't it? Because it's... like, they, they wasn't aware. They was having a great time with her. Like, and like you say, like no signs of distress mm. or anything. Like, And there's a whole big thing around alcohol and what it does, you know, in a way it can subdue the stresses. It makes you forget it. It, it, it numbs you, mm. I guess in some ways, but it also numbs you to what is risky and, you know, I don't think if I was completely sober that night, that sequence of you, events would have happened. Have no chance, it, yeah, yeah. no chance. Um, so that's why you've got to be very mindful of alcohol uh, when you're not in a good place. And now if I do go out and have a drink with friends, I, I'm very conscious, I'm very mindful of how am I feeling. I know that I'm well beyond that place now, but I don't drink when I'm in a bad place or I'm stressed or things, are, but I, I only drink or... It, to to go and have a beer when things are good, when the sun is shining and I feel good. If I, if if there's any wavering at all in in my mood, feelings, emotions, thoughts, behaviors, anything, I will not drink. I'll go out and I'll sit and have a soft drink. What was your kind of friend's reaction when they kind of did they ever find out straight away? Yeah, to I had to, yeah, I had, to I had to make a few calls. My uncle then turned up, um, you know, at the hospital and was just like he couldn't. But it was just a lot of disbelief. And then my my good friends turned up at the flat and like I saw they. The, they were guys and the guys started crying and they were like, we had no idea. Why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you come to us? And at that point I was like, why didn't I go to you? Like, I just didn't want to burden anyone. I just want I just wanted to like, 
I just want to get that headspace. You must feel like you're on your own, aren't you? Like, yeah. knowing you can... I mean, what was kind of that journey after that? Like, where do you go for support? Like, what kind of treatment do you get? Like, how do you kind of start that kind of rebuild process? Rebuild, rehabilitation. Well, the first thing was my uncle was like, you know, we're throwing everything at getting you better, which he would have done before that anyway, had he have known, but he didn't know. So I'm trying various therapy, I'm trying hypnotherapy, all sorts, you name it, I've probably yeah. tried it. And, uh, and you know, I went through a whole bunch of different treatments. I, I did, chose for myself to, to, to not start with any medication. Um, and that's, that was purely my decision. I'm not for or against. Um, but I had seen my, the journey that mum had had with various medication. And I was like, there has to be another way to get better. And I want to rely on myself and my ability and my innate ability to, to get strong yeah. and, and to, to adjust what was not quite working internally. So I took a period of time to get back on my own two feet, um, to understand myself, my mind, what had happened, why it had happened, where those thoughts had come from to better understand mental health in general, mum's situation, the knock on effect to mine. And at the end of that, I then thought, you know what? I've studied and learned so much, which was uh, uh, initially a, a therapeutic base, which was trying to be a better, better listener. So, so counseling studies yeah. to be a better support for mum. Then I realized that actually I didn't want to spend too more time, a lot of more time in that space because counseling or for counselors, it can be quite heavy. So you sit and you, you take on a lot. And bringing that home as well. You bring that home. Yeah. And, and I, I wasn't even sure if I was ready to, if I was fully yeah. out the gate to be able to, to kind of take on all of that stuff. So the therapy moved into coaching because coaching for me at the time was more solution focused and it didn't have to always be about mental health. Yeah. We, you, you come, it might be, I want to get a promotion or you come with a task. So I yeah. then moved into coaching and then I wanted to academically go a little bit further and to, to understand the mind more. And so I began a master's in positive psychology, applied psychology, um, where I could then take the research and the theory behind it all, but also the lived experience and combine that. What works, what works well for you then? Like when, obviously when you was at that point where he's going to commit suicide, mm -hmm. like, what was that treatment for you, which helps you? Was it CBT or was it talking? I had some yet? CBT, which, which was really good. I had lots of different practitioners. Um, but one of the ones that I really remember was the, 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 the cognitive behavioral therapist saying to me, okay. And I was talking about the breakup and how sad it had made me. I felt it was my mm. fault and that, you know, I had hurt someone that I deeply cared about. And she, she, she was, this, there was a big whiteboard and she said to me, okay, draw on this board what that takes up for you, what that as, as an image. And I drew this kind of black puddle, like the sadness. She was like, okay, and draw these other components. What else have you got? You've got your uncle who loves you. You've got friends, you've mm. got this. And I started to draw all of these pictures. And then for the first time I sort of stepped back and I was like, wow, I was so engrossed and immersed in that small dark patch. I didn't see anything else outside it, but being able to draw it and step back and look at it objectively, I was able to be like, you've got, so much. nine things yeah. that are going well in your life works going well you've managed to buy a flat your sisters are healthy like i wasn't seeing any of that i was just You're so, so fixated on the i was consumed yeah. by the one thing uh, that was that was uh overwhelming me and it was why did i did i make the biggest mistake of my life did i hurt someone that didn't deserve to be hurt all of that kind of stuff um so i just yeah i took time uh to to get better myself 
um, to, be, to, to increase that self-awareness and then to, to then begin to study and, and, and take my experience. I was also being asked by certain charities to go because of my acting experience to go and be uh, a mental health speaker. Yeah. Uh, for so all this experiences then kind of led to kind of the work you do now. With yeah. The, yeah. The it, life coaching. Like. Yeah. It just, the path has just kind of unfolded and I'm still auditioning and I'm still doing the acting stuff. But what I've realized is my real passion lies with helping and supporting people. And I believe a lot in this life of service, life and service to others, you know, is very fulfilling and that's what I've experienced in my journey. And so now I see the acting as kind of like a hobby. The auditions come in, I get, I, I create the audition tapes, yeah. I send them off. And if a job comes in, brilliant, I'll right. go and do yeah. that. And if it but doesn't. You're not fully supporting on that now, so which is great. You've kind of got your life coaching and like, yeah. imagine you'd be quite stressed out as well if you're like, <laughs> If, well, like if it, it was just one thing, like yeah, you've got other things going, and and, and it's a really acting is a there's a whole world to explore in acting and psychology and what that does to people. And I know that there were quite a few guys that left who did attempt to take their own lives in the probably two subsequent years after drama school. You found out that after after yeah, yeah because. Isn't that mad? It's like, really, really interesting. And something that I might do as like a dissertation piece in, in, in my master's because... What, why do you think it's people within kind of the musical theatre like acting? You, you, go to a, you go to a place where you are deconstructed in some ways, okay? You learn to, you, you, you take apart your identity a little bit so that you can be malleable, so you can become different people and different char characters. And so you sort of unmask and all of these things come out at university. And, 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 um, and what I mean by that is a lot of your emotions come up, things come up in performances, you know, someone bursts out into tears in rehearsal, you realize because it's from a trauma that she experienced three or four years ago, a lot of stuff comes up because you're, 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 yeah, you're dealing with it deep emotions. If you're really connecting with the character, you're not crying on a, on a level that's up here. You're crying from your, and it your probably brings up emotions you've completely forgot about as well. Or never imagine. even experienced. Yeah. Maybe, different levels like. that you've, that you've contained and not processed. So that's a really interesting space. Mm. And I think you then, you then leave drama school. You've, you've worked really hard for three years. You've put your, and you're a good actor. Low, yeah. Like it wasn't, it wasn't even a meritocracy. The best actors didn't all get agents. It was, do you have a face that fits the gap that we need? Yeah. So you imagine that. So then people have graduated, they've come out, they're thinking, right, I haven't got an agent. I've worked three years to, 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 to get an agent ultimately to get me to, as my window to work. That hasn't happened. And then you've got this, I don't know, this societal expectation on, on maybe men yeah. or, or perhaps then it was that, you know, to be the, to be the provider, to, to, to support their partners. Um, and I think that we were training in the North and, you know, the Northern kind of bravado of like, yeah. you know, I'm the, you know, and, that, and, and I think a lot of guys struggled with that. I think a lot of guys were then, okay, you're going to go, you need to go and take that job in that bar. Okay. So you're now a graduate with a mar with a BA yeah. and you're coming out and it's like, take that bar job. And there's nothing wrong with that. Cause you're then thinking, okay, this bar job is a means to an end. But what happens when you're in that bar job now for it's another two years, it, yeah, really hard, yeah. really hard. And so I think a really, a, a lot of people struggled with that. And then, you know, if they've met a partner and then they've had a kid, the responsibility is no longer just you. You're, you're to some degree, you've got oh, to yes, provide yes, and yes. you've got another 
mouth to feed and someone to support. It's a lot of pressure. So yeah, I think a lot of people did struggle. Uh, I wasn't the only one. I was, I was, you know. You, did it surprise you when you found out two other people went through a similar yeah, experience? Yeah. So one of the things that happened, so a very dear friend of mine at university is a guy called Johnny Benjamin. Johnny Benjamin, um, one of my best friends still, lovely, lovely guy. He made a documentary called Stranger on the Bridge. It's a Channel 4 documentary about him attempting to take his life and a stranger coming up to him on the bridge and talking him down and showing him compassion and telling, reassuring him that things would be okay. And they became really good mates and campaigners. And I remember seeing that documentary and I was like, Johnny, like what happened to you, mate? Like I went through he a similar, aware, like, I had yeah. no idea. Like we, you know, he was, he was, had his own battles with, he was dealing with his sexuality. Um, he, he came out as gay later on. He came from a Jewish family who are all so loving mm. and supportive, but his internal thing was, I can't tell anyone this is shame on the family. So he was dealing with his own stuff and um, it, that's where it led him. And so he um, became a, a, a big, it still is a big campaigner for, for, for mental health. Uh, he does a lot of stuff with kids now, actually. Um, and I remember, so I was living with him at the time and he had a, a talk to go to and he said, Danny, I just ripped my, I don't feel up to it. Would you mind coming with me to this yeah. talk that I've got to deliver? I said, yeah, no problem. Listen, I'm not doing anything today. So we got a taxi to this talk and it was at his brother's company. And, um, at the end they just said, Hey, do you want to share a couple of words of your experiences, friends and like two men at university kind of, together. Yeah, what you've been through and everything. And I was like, sure, if you want me to. And it sort of became a bit of a Q&A. And, and at the end of it, they said, wow, this is so powerful. You two guys as best friends going through all of this experience, not knowing what each other were going through. You're in a group of 30 people at drama school. It's tight. You, yeah. you, you should kind of know what's going on with yeah. each other. And so people kept saying to us, that's really powerful. That's really moving. You should think about going together and do, delivering some of these talks together. So Johnny then said to me, did you want to come and do more stuff with me? And I said, you know what, if it helps people yeah. and we can share our experiences as two young men that, that didn't feel comfortable sharing their experience and then why not? It because must feel so like fulfilling now. Like, I mean, that obviously one of the main reasons why you do it, help people, but it must be so fulfilling when you feel like you've actually touched or like changed people's lives. Yeah, it, it, you know, I, re, I asked mum, there was a point that there was a documentary going to be made about my experience of mums. And and uh, I said to her, mum, are you comfortable with this? Like, you know, I want to share some of our story and our journey. And I remember her saying, look, if everything that we've been through can help other people, then it's worth it, even if it helps one person. Mm. Uh, and that was really powerful. And it's our story and our journey has helped more than, much more than one yeah. person. And it's sort of, for me, it makes everything that we've experienced worthwhile. Yeah. Everything, all the trauma that mum has experienced, all the trauma that myself and my sisters, my family have experienced has, it has all found some meaning. It and means something now, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like now you're helping other people with yeah. all these, obviously like what you went through was like so much, but obviously now you've, you've, you've learned from that and you yeah. can take that and you can kind of help other people. Yeah. Where, where do you see yourself going in the next kind of couple of years with life coaching and, helping people so the life coaching business is up and it's set up and i'm really enjoying the work there there's individual coaching i'm doing a lot of work with organizations at the moment one day of the week is spent is my sort of charitable arm day which is we'll go to schools or organizations charity you know, yeah places that don't have very much funding and that's my giving back but this um 
the masters that I'm doing in positive psychology, applied positive psychology and coaching psychology is, is now on a much deeper academic level where I'm looking at wider systemic change. So where I was initially going and dealing one-to-one, you know, you're a male, you're dealing with poor mental health because of X, Y, and Z, and we do coaching. I'm now looking at wider structures as to how we look as a society at mental health and well-being, and how much of what we've known historically has been based in what's known as a deficit-based model. There is a problem, we treat it. Someone comes in with, with symptoms of depression, we treat it as medication or there's therapy. Do you think, do you think people's kind of upbringing and kind of environment when they're brought up young plays a massive part in their mental health later on in life? Yes, it definitely does. However, that's not to say that someone that has experienced trauma, where there's now, there's a lot of research say to, to, and studies to show now that those that did experience difficult or traumatic, uh, upbringing sometimes become the most successful because they had the, re- the resilience had to be built early. Mm. They had to overcome challenges. So there is a lot and a lot of so academia. Listen to the Russell Brand interviews on the Diary of the CEO and he kind of touched upon kind of the upbringing, how really successful people, they go through a lot of trauma and they kind of use that to kind of spur them on in some ways. Yeah, yeah and, and that's a lot of the study that I'm doing at the moment. We, I want to, we want to acknowledge that individuals have experienced trauma. It's not forgetting, but there are ways to f- try and frame that to positively impact your future. And I've learned that firsthand. You know, I could certainly look at my experiences and sit there and be like, this happened, this happened, this happened and languish. And that doesn't help me. Mm. What helps me is trying to understand, okay, that is the past. I cannot change it. I can become aware of my present and how my mood and affect my feelings now. And hopefully that will inform my future. But there's stuff in the past that I cannot change. So how am I going to look at it? And I think that is the whole spectrum of this positive psychology movement. The three points of psychology were initially to treat mental illness, to support the ordinary day people. So in today and to study geniuses, that was what psychology was set up to do. But after world war two, it all shifted completely. And because there was so much trauma from the war, yeah, all of this, all of psychology's efforts moved towards the deficit model, treating trauma. Okay. And actually what we started to neglect was supporting the modern day and also looking at studying geniuses. And what studying geniuses means is not literal geniuses, although they were included as well, but looking at what's going well within society, what organizations and individuals are flourishing, how are they? You know, there's so much positive news that does get released, but what we're shown all the time is the negative news. So the youngest person to ever do all of their math GCSEs and get A stars in all of them or whatever those metrics were. Yeah. What what that point of psychology was supposed to do was what were the environments that supported this young child to, to make them to achieve that. Yeah, yeah. And, and that I find so fascinating. Yeah. And the model that we have at the moment is not really sustainable. We can't keep just everybody gets really sick and, and stressed and burnt out and then we treat it with therapy. It's not a sustainable model. What we need to be doing is trying to really set okay what's working well how do we emulate that who are those people that's not to say there's not a space for therapy and all that but everything about mental health really at the moment is about mental ill health it is not about flourishing in a competency-based model which is on the other side of the spectrum which no one hears anything about you know being in flow flourishing positive emotion positive effects none of these things are even probably people have heard of but they are important parts to our growth and our development so i'm really interested in broadening that 
that that continuum again and bringing yeah. awareness to that now so it's taken it's, it's taking a new shape and an yeah. exciting shape and there's lots of theory and research behind well, it's it. incredible are, are you, you you're kind of adapting and you're, you're learning more and you do more courses and it kind of yeah no it's great to see and uh, yeah. you know it's super exciting it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast, Danny. Thank I'm you glad, for having me. Honestly, it was so easy to organize, get you down. Like some with some guests, I'm like chasing them like every week to. But honestly, no, it's a pleasure, and like I'm I'm really grateful that you come down straight away, and we got the opportunity to have you on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks. If for anyone me. wants to kind of follow you on kind of your Instagram and social channels, like Instagram. I, Instagram is Danny Raheem official. I think it is now. Someone someone cloned my account. So Danny oh, right. Raheem official. Um, and what else? LinkedIn, Danny Rahim. I mean, yeah. it's a unique name. So you put me in somewhere, you're going to find you, you me. Find and it, Danny yeah. Rahim coaching is where, where all the coaching, uh, and that side of things takes place. No, it's amazing, Danny. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And thank you. If you guys enjoy it, make sure to click subscribe and click <laughs> that like button. If it's on YouTube, <laughs> wherever you, wherever you're watching it, subscribe and uh, keep.